Well, good morning to everybody. Welcome you to the first uh, Sunday in uh, 2007. And I want to um, welcome you also to a brand new exciting study about uh, how do we lay a strong foundation, standpoint of a framework for how we think about who God is, we are, this world, what's in it, um, Christ have to do co- co- his role in our lives, uh, about the angelic realm, about the Spirit of God, um, about the church, and lots of different of of laying a strong foundation in our lives. And I want to welcome you um, up front to course and what we're calling uh, deeper expeditions uh, into revealed. So you know the tagline really is about you know, how do we lay a strong foundation a strong foundation built on the Word of God and what truth really says. At um, this, this, uh, this class will go for 21 sessions. Uh, it will go from uh, one se- first, uh, January 7th uh, through um, up until May 27th. And so those 21 sessions um, break down into really two major components, what is called systematic theology. First three weeks are going to focus on Jesus Christ, or another word for that would be Christology. Uh, the last uh, will focus all around um, angelology, study of angels, Christ. So, in the first three weeks, we'll focus on an introduction to Christ, Christ's incarnation, moment of prophecy in the first week. Second week will be about the person of Christ. Um, person of Christ is really going to be about two dimensions of vanity, and one will. Third week um, that will wrap up Christology will be focused around the work of Christ. What did He do? Anytime you want to look at how does Christianity relationship with Christ differ from all other religions, of really centers down on two things. One is was Christ? What was His person? To what did He do? Person and His work. That's really where we're going to spend our time character of this person called Jesus Christ. Well, in the weeks to follow, we'll look at um, on things that exist beyond what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands um, into the spiritual realm. What exists there and what is it for? Um, we'll also look at Satan, um, this created being who was an archangel, um, highest uh, order of angelic beings, and uh, we're going to look at uh, where he came from, his origin, uh, what what was it like before he fell, uh, sinned, what did that sin look like, um, and what was God's response to that sin, get um, his sin in detail, understand how that sin really manifests itself across into our fall today. We're going to look at uh, Satan's role in the world and condemnation result of the fall of mankind uh, back in the Garden of Eden. At his defeat, the fact that uh, Christ is the head crusher of the adversary. And we're going to look at all the names of Satan throughout the scriptures and uh, in Hebrew, the lot. The, the and so there are many, many names that the speak of Satan. We're, in, in week 11, we're going to work, we're going to look at uh, Satan's current roles role and his feet at his judgment yet to come. Uh, then we're going to look at um, fallen angels called demons. Uh, the truth about them, um, their role in temptation, 
Um, and in order to do that, we're going to look at uh, how they tempted Christ, what we can learn from that those te- that temptation. And then we're going to look at the na- very nature of tempt purpose. How does it work? Uh, look at the different doors in our lives uh, that um, to tempt us. And what do those doors look like? We'll look at a uh, paint a paint a picture of two completely. One is a biblical worldview. Second is a worldview that is world fallen angels, including adversary Satan, for us to think wrongly about God and side make decisions around our things in our lives that um, um, uh, taunt us. And we're going to look at the poison and the doctrine of demons. What is the what is it that they espouse? What is it that they speak of? What is it that they try to get people? And uh, then in week nineteen, we're going to make a transition from to look at uh, our our armor of light. What do the scriptures say about the armor that we have? What is that armor? That armor actually manifests itself. And, and how, does it, how do we use that armor in life? How do we lean fully in? 20, we're going to look at holy angels and 21. And first week, as we look at holy angels, we're going to look at their attributes. Second week of that, to finish up our 21 study here of laying foundation for expeditions into regret, uh, classification and the ministry of holy angels. So I really encourage you to come on this expedition with us. Um, take a look at what um, God says in his word about these things, our intent to use the word of God. Make sure you have your, your Bibles open. The, in the online study for this, uh, you should be able to find both an audio and you will find um, an outline and you'll find... PowerPoints, uh, set of PowerPoint slides. Uh, best way po- f- forward to be able to the best use of this, literally download the PowerPoint, download the outline, print off the outline, and then have the have the PowerPoint slides up as I walk through study with you, and fill in the blanks of the outline with both on the audio and in the PowerPoint slides. That will give you the greatest opportunity to remember and to learn uh, these truths that are so precious to our um, Christ. So let's begin our time um, by looking at Jesus Christ um, Christology, if you would. Um, let's take a look at uh, uh, Josh McDowell. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote a book um, with Bert Larson called Jesus. In that book, it's really a biblical defense of the deity of Christ. My intent today is to bring out with you really the purpose of why Josh McDowell um, wrote that book. And he is very clear that he was uh, atheist, not believe in God, did not believe in Christ, and really in his life, before he knew Christ, um, said, um, I initially examined Christianity in order to write a book which would make a mockery of Christ. And Christ. So the question at the end of the day is, well, who really was Jesus Christ and what did he really do? So that is our intent, is to really walk through that and understand how, who is this person of Christ? Who is he? How does he stand alone? as different from all other human beings. I want to begin that study uh, looking at his incarnation. incarnation. The meaning of the word incarnation literally has to do, uh, speaks of being, quote, in and flesh. The two words. And so it's, it's, it's literally in the flesh. 
in the flesh. Um, let's take a look at the beginning of John, the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is written by John, obviously, and uh, John was one of Christ's uh, closest disciples, probably the closest disciple. In fact, he, he and other disciples speak of him as the disciple who Christ loved. And he set out to write the gospel according to John um, with, with a clear purpose that we see in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So turn there with me, if you would. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says here, many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These have been written that you may believe. This is the Christ, Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his... So the purpose why John wrote his letter, this gospel, um, about who Jesus Christ was, is that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and a by believing in him, you may have life in his name. It says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's really talking about presenting Jesus Christ in all of his humanity, all of his deity. So he begins his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, and then verse 14. Let's read those together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Word was God. Was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into the into being that has come into being. So here we see Jesus Christ's distinct and super finite personality was the called the Word, and, and this Word was there in the beginning, the beginning of creation. The Word existed, and it says that. That Christ was with God, and Christ was God. So he was deity. His relationship to the Godhead was very clear. Was God. Was in the beginning with God, meaning that he pre-existed creation. And that he is a person, uh, in verse 2. And that he brought all things into being that have been created. So he he is there at the beginning at, at creation and he is the the first cause of creation because all things that came into existence came from him. So his deity is very clear in verse in verse uh, 1 here. And as we look at verse 14 it says and the word Christ became flesh and dwelled among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace, truth. So here we see that he was became flesh. Um, the idea here is that he word became flesh. He he was not flesh, human flesh, and he became he, he became flesh. Um, he dwelled among us. The idea is the word dwelled is he among us. He tabernacled among us, speaking clearly of his pre-existent state, that he, be, he took on, if you would, skin of flesh and became flesh um, of his own accord, of his own will. And it says here that we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, when did John and um, the others that he says we 
Peter, James, and John, when did they behold his glory? When did that happen? Well, we know that that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, that, that it was there that they were eyewitnesses uh, at the Transfiguration, a very glory of God when he was transfigured from his human physical appearance and literally like drew back the covers to be able to see his his glory. And his glory is, is communicated there as light, white hot light, like lightning, um, is his glory. And his glory then becomes the manifestation of the beauty of character, which is his divine character. So um, he is called the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so this only begotten is the very unique son, uh, the, the one who is the one and only son, the idea of, of, of being begotten here. So we also take a look here at First John. If we look at the letters that, that John wrote, uh, let's, let's turn to First John chapter 1 um, and take a look at um, what he says there in First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. First uh, John chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. As you can tell, this, this is very similar to what he says in the Gospel. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, now we beheld, what we beheld with our, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. The word of life here is Jesus Christ. Messiah. He says, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, Christ, which was with the Father and then, quote, was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So, John, one who is loved by God, by Christ, um, says that he, he was in a, in a pre-existent state with God, with the Father the end of verse 2. And so, not only was he with the Father, but he then became manifested to us in that he became flesh. So, um, word is Christ, existed eternity past, and now, according to John, has become manifested in flesh. Um, let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. The key passage that speaks of um, what actually happened at that time. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 says, it's talking about Jesus Christ in verse 5. Jesus Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what we see here is that four things. First of all, that um, God in the skin of man... God in the skin. So, what we see here is that, first and foremost, he existed as God. It says, he existed in the form of God. Verse 6. 
beginning of verse 6. He existed in the form of God. What does that mean? Well, well it means that he existed as a, as a permanent expression of the very essential attributes of who God is. That's how he existed before. And it says here that he did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or grasped. The idea of grasped means to be held on to or to hold closely. It's also the idea of to hoard it selfishly, to clutch it or to tightly cling on to it. He says he didn't didn't desire, he did did not regard his very essential equality with God, which he existed before, as something to be held on to or or kept or uh, hoarded closely. But it says that he emptied himself. The idea is he willingly emptied himself of certain attributes of his divine nature, and he took on the form of a bondservant. Inwardly, he took on the form of a servant, a servant who would look not merely out for his own interests in verse 4, but also for the interests of others, um, and so that he would do nothing from selfishness, um, but selfishness, but he would regard others as more important than himself. And so that mindset of a servant, of a bondservant, is what he took on in, inwardly. But outwardly, verse 7, it says that he was made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man. So his outward flesh, his skin, that he took on, gave him the appearance of, of, of a man. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, this did as God, in the form of God, he emptied himself of, the, uh, of certain attributes of his divine nature um, for a period of time. The idea is there is that he, he put them on a shelf uh, willingly, and that he took on the form of a bondservant, one who would serve others, not himself. And he was made in the likeness of man, sternly. So, um, his humanity was also sinless. Um, his humanity was also sinless. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Romans 8, verse 3. He says, Paul says, What the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh... God did, sending his own son, here you go, in the likeness of the of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in flesh, in his in, in the flesh. And so the idea here is that is, is really two main things. First of all, when it says he was in the likeness of of sinful flesh, what it means is that Jesus Christ um, was free of the sin nature that all mankind has had since Adam. That sin nature is passed on through the genes, through um, father, the father of any human. So that, that very sin nature did not exist with Christ because his father was God. And that, and that, that union did not exist with Mary. And so as a result, that very sin nature did not um, get passed on to Christ. And secondly, when it says that he was um, uh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, is that 
uh, he, he did not have any personal sin himself. The, the actions of sin, the sin's actions in his life, not didn't, he never sinned. He was sinless. So he, he was likeness of flesh, but he, he trappings of sin as to the sin nature or sinning himself. Uh, let's also take a look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. Here he, sa- he says, And you know that he, Jesus Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So this idea of that he appeared is, the, is exactly what we're talking about. He, he went from the invisible to the visible. He was forever God, and he took on, the word became flesh, and he took on the skin of man, and his humanity was sinless. And he did so in order to take away sin, because in him there is no sin. So when it says that he did that in order to take away sin, is the idea here is that there's three dimensions of this. One is, he, took, he did this in order to take away sin from the standpoint of to pay sin's penalty. Pay sin's penalty. Uh, here we see in chapter 2 of First John, verse 2, he says, And he himself is the satisfaction or propitiation. Uh, the idea of a, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for those sins of the whole world. And so, first and foremost, why? It was to take away sin's penalty. The penalty of sin is death. And Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross. The second is to bring an end to sin's domination or power in our life. And this really is manifested or evidenced by Christ's own life, that he was free from sin, therefore took away the power of sin. So sin no longer has to have domination in our life as believers in Christ, because he has given us his life, his Holy Spirit in our life, to, to say no to sin. And, and so the third thing was to really give us hope. Think about the fact that the very presence of sin one day in the future will be shattered forever, and we will no longer have the very presence of sin to deal with or to live with. John says in Revelation chapter 21, he says, The old things have been passed away. Behold, all things, I'm making all things new. The old things, the things of this first first world are the things of sin. The, sin, the, the, the consequences of sin are going to be gone forever. And he says the very sin, sin itself will, the power of sin will be broken because of life, but the very presence of sin forever obliterated, never again will be a part of our future state uh, with Christ. B.B. Warfield said, He is declared, Jesus Christ is declared, in the most expressed manner possible, all that God is, and thus the whole fullness of attributes, make God who he is, that is God. And so, I want to look at um, the fulfillment of prophecy as we think about the um, very unique nature of Jesus Christ. Who is this God-man? Who is this one who was promised from the beginning um, to come? And what does that have to do with the ramifications of where we stand today and what is yet promised for the future. It has huge consequences. Think about prophecy. Prophecy by its very nature um, 
tells of things that are to come into the future. God, in, in, through his holy, through his prophets of old, um, in the Old Testament, prophesied about this one who was to come, this God-man, this this Christ, this Messiah, this one who would be yet to come, who would, going back to Genesis three fifteen, would um, crush the head of the serpent. This one who was prophesied from the very beginning, who would come and set his people free and be the one to save them, ultimately. Well, scriptures have a lot to say about uh, Jesus Christ. And 30% of all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, are prophecy. 30% are, of the scriptures are prophecy. And there are over 300 prophecies about the first coming of Christ. 300. There are over 400 prophecies about Christ's second coming, yet to, which is yet in the future. But when we look back just at Christ's first coming, and we think about these 300 prophecies, it is a mind-boggling probability that these prophecies would occur in a single person. They've been, uh, as they actually did. And, and I want to use some of the uh, evidence um, that Josh McDowell lays out in his book, um, More Than a Carpenter, um, which I highly recommend for anybody who's looking at Christ really is far more than a carpenter. The very, very son of God and son of man. I want to lay out uh, some of the thinking that he has there and probability perspective, be able to statistically show through prophecy how Jesus Christ was the son of God. Um, when we think about that prophecy, and, and most of these prophecies in the Old Testament were written, um, well, all of them were at least 400 years before Christ. They were written um, over a period of a thousand years time. And so the fact that all of these prophecies point to a single person who would fulfill these prophecies is amazing as it pertains to scientific probability. Scientific probability of only 48 out of these more than 300 prophecies actually coming to fruition or being fulfilled in just one person is literally 10 to the 157th power. State that again. It's 10 to the 157th power. We're not talking about 300 prophecies. We're not talking about more than 300 prophecies. We're not talking about 100 of these. We're just literally talking about 48 of them. If those were to occur in a single individual, that would be 10 157th power. That's one with 157 zeros after it. That I can't even think in statistical probability of that occurring that is mind-boggling. So let's not take it from 48. Let's not talk about more than 300. Let's just talk for a second about only eight of these prophecies being fulfilled in just one person. That alone, just eight, not 48, not more than 300, has the statistical probability of one with 17 zeros after it. That's one with 17 zeros after it. That's opposed 
to 10 to 157th power, which is just 48 versus 8 out of the 300, greater than 300. Let's just talk for a second about how much that really is. What that means. If I were to just explain that in layman's terms, just the 8, not the 48, not the 300, it would be it would be the same as us taking, let's say, the state of Texas. The entire state of Texas is one of the biggest states in the U.S. Um, take the entire state, and I would fill it up with gold coins, silver do- gold, silver dollars, and fill it up, not just so it covers the whole state, but it covers the whole state literally two feet high. And being two feet high, covered completely, I would take and blindfold you. I would mark one of those gold coins out someplace in the state with a, a magic marker on the back of it. And I'm going to blindfold you. I'm going to set you loose. I'm going to allow you to go out and go any place in the state. But you are blindfolded and you only have one choice to pick up the right gold coin. Well, the statistical probability of just 8, not 48, greater than three, or greater than 300 of just eight of those prophecies happening in a single person, Jesus Christ, is the same probability of you going out blindfolded and finding that in the in first chance that one gold coin someplace in the state of Texas two feet high. Unbelievable probability. Then add in 48, add in 100, add in 200, add in 300. It is mind-boggling and, com- and, and literally does not compute. That, that could occur one person so this is the this is the confidence that we can have in um, in, in in fulfillment of prophecy and uh, and therefore give you great confidence in your faith as it pertains to Jesus Christ well I next want to look at um, union of deity and humanity and turn with me back to um, the Old Testament Isaiah I want to look at Isaiah uh, chapter 9, uh, and uh, let's look at verses 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. He says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. What an unbelievable picture of this person, this child who's going to be born in the future. And it says here that he will be born to us. Well, that speaks of his humanity. And it says a son will be given to us. Well, that speaks of his deity. He's going to be given to us, not born. He, um, so he, he he's existed before and he's going to be given to us, but then he's also going to be born. Um and sp- speaks of his humanity and his deity. And, and interestingly enough, uh, he goes on um, at the end of verse 6, and he says, his name's going to be called Mighty God and Eternal Father. Mighty God is, 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 is the Almighty One. That, that's, a, that's a terminology that was only used of God. Um, and Eternal Father, speaking of this one who ha- had, had no beginnings, he is... He is the eternal Father. He is equal, in essence, to God, the Father. And so, he is the pre-existent one. 
interestingly enough, Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, uh, In Christ, all the fullness of God himself dwells in bodily form. That's all of it. All of it dwells in bodily form. Turn back a page or two in Isaiah, and let's look at um, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14. Here we see a prophecy given to King Ahaz, and it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The idea of um, being his name being Emmanuel literally means God with us. And this is a this is a prophecy more than 800 years before Christ, that a virgin is going to become pregnant, somehow, some way, bear a son, and his name will be God with us. So he will literally be God dwelling with man. Um, what an amazing prophecy. Um, last but not least in our time together this morning, I want to take a look at the virgin birth. Um, I want to talk about the promise. Um, how did this promise manifest itself and come into existence? Let's take a look at Matthew 1, verse 20, 23. Matthew 1, turn with me there, um, verses 1, uh, Matthew 1, verses 20 through 23. He says, But when he considered this, this is Joseph, uh, talking about Joseph and Mary, But when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place while, now all this took place that was, was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, quote, all the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So what we see here is literally the origin of this son, who who is promised from from Isaiah, um, chapter seven, is 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 going to save his people from their sins. But his very origin is divine in nature. Uh, it says here, into verse 21, being conceived in her is, quote, of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at cha- uh, Luke chapter 1. Chapter 1, the Gospel according to Luke. Chapter 1, look at verse 35. Together. It says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, the Most High God, will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God. So he's going to come upon you, he's going to overshadow you, he's going to ensure that this union, this, to create a holy offspring, Son of God. And so here we see the Son of God and Son of Man thoroughly fused together into the, into the God-man that, it, that was promised from the beginning. So what we believe literally is that Jesus Christ um, is, quote, perfect humanity, and full deity, that he's united in one person without mixture, without change, without division, without separation, in one person forever and ever and ever and ever and ever ever. And and this is really bear, is borne out that after Jesus Christ's death, that he rose again. Um, and 
Just in closing, turn with me to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, where we see really this, the first martyr in the church, um, first person in the church to be martyred um, for his faith um, is Stephen. And we see here Paul was with at that, there at that time, and he, he, he there, and Luke um, documents this stoning of Stephen. It says, verse 54, and, and when they heard this, um, when they heard this, uh, they were cut to the quick. Um, they were totally convicted. Um, and they began gnashing their teeth at him, Stephen, and being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And who's the Son of Man? Son of God, Jesus. So in his post-resurrected state, he literally sees God unveils heaven in the twilight of moments, twilight moments of Stephen's life as he's trans, going to transition from this life to the other. As they prepare to stone him, uh, he sees God illuminates him, unveils heaven to him, sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And so what it, what's the significance of him standing at the right hand of the Father? Well, first and foremost, it's that Jesus Christ was dead, and now he's alive. He, he's alive. And the fact that he's alive has unbelievable consequences because he now has conquered sin and conquered death and he has gained the victory over all these things as the God-man. Second, he stands ready to act, ready to judge, ready to make all things right. And in this case, to welcome Stephen into heaven. I think of Psalms, and he says, you know, psalmist says, you know, precious in the sight of God is the death of his godly ones. And Jesus stands ready to uh, in, uh, accept Steve, Stephen into his third heaven. And last but not least, um, Jesus Christ, the significance of, of Stephen seeing Christ standing at the right hand of the Father is that the right hand is the place of ultimate authority, greatest authorities, like right hand man. Well, right hand in authority is that Jesus Christ has the ultimate authority of God. The ultimate authority has been given by God to him to judge the living and the dead. That That is yet coming in the future. So, as we think about just literally um, Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his the fulfillment of prophecy, and his virgin birth, it screams to us fact that Jesus Christ is unique beyond all mankind as the God-man, the unique Son of God, Son of Man, who, who came to save his people from their sins, and today has conquered death and stands at the right hand of the Father to judge all the living and the dead for all time. And the scriptures are very clear, after all this is over, he willingly gives all authority back to the Father, and we will be with him. For so with that, I'd like to close our time together this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for 
um, confidence, the utter confidence we can have in, in, in fulfilled prophecy and to understand the very nature of who Jesus Christ is, who he was before all time, and, and where he is today, and that he is who he said he was, you can have complete confidence in everything he said he did and who he was as a result of fulfilled prophecy. Father, I pray that you'd help us today as we go from here in our life to scream and to speak highly of Christ, and that it's Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, as the one who we worship, model our lives after, seek to become more like Amen.